Welcome into this episode of Discard for Magic. I'm Aaron, your host. And I'm James, or Jexic, the other host. And today we have with us Shampoo, a great uh, player in the community and recent runner-up in the deck building tournament. Hi guys, happy to be here. So Shampoo, why don't you start out and just tell us like a little bit of how you came to Summer Wars. So um, during the pandemic, a lot of my friends started kind of not uh, going or leaving their houses anymore. And board games I used to play with them uh, were pretty much uh, not getting to the table anymore. So my wife and I started looking for two-player games. Um, so I was doing some research. I actually saw a Shut Up and Sit Down review of Summoner Wars. Uh, There's another article I saw on, I think, the New York Times on best two-player games. And um, that one really piqued my interest. And I have a history of playing chess, so I do like chess a lot. I'm also a little bit of a nerd, so I do like turn-based strategy games in video games like Tactics Ogre, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics. So all of it, Summoner Wars on paper just seemed really good. Um, and I was really excited to try it. Um, I went to my local game store, couldn't find it, but then I found it on Amazon. Uh, and I gave it a shot with my wife. What did she think of it? So honestly, I didn't love it like I do now. Like right now, like it's one of my favorite games. When I first started, I was just a little bit um, overwhelmed with the amount of abilities I had to memorize. I think the core mechanics were there, but there was a lot of just like kind of like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And then bow wow, like I'm dead now. Um, well, <laughs> that, that was more on my wife's side, but um, so my wife didn't like, like it either. I definitely saw the potential. So I kind of just obsessed over it and then found sw zone and then just started learning the cards and once you memorize and like learn all the abilities and cards i feel like that's when the game really starts to kind of pick up and shine so i know i've been a little bit critical in, in the discord in terms of accessibility for new players and part of that is based on my experience with the game and then once i learned all the abilities and and you know, played all the different factions. I think that's, again, when the game really starts to shine. Mm -hmm. I think that's something to be said for that for sure. Because if you take a game like, for example, League of Legends, I have a bunch of friends that play it. I've never had any interest because there's like 130 different people you can play. So you got to know like all of them to even play the game, I feel like, to have a good experience. So you yeah, know for sure. Summoner, if Summoner Wars gets to the level that it potentially could of like 60 decks or so, then I feel like that accessibility might even continue to decrease a little bit, which is unfortunate. I, th I think it's, it's fixable for sure. I just think that there needs to be some kind of strategy or plan in terms of new players that's uh, more evident than it is now than just like hey like go swim in the deep end and and figure it out um you know what i mean i also think it's good that they're reusing abilities here and there uh, that's something like whenever it comes up i'm like yes please reuse another ability like i love that uh imbued strength is all over the place you know the, the simple thing of like for each boost on this card you get an extra strength because i feel like that's a good easy to understand thing and kind of introduces you to how boosts work, but all these cards have different ways of getting boosts. So then it ends up playing differently, you know? 
I totally agree. Um, yeah, that's definitely, and each faction can still have their own flavor with a little bit of overlap in terms of abilities. I think also the fact that they have like the uh, computer, the AI, Doug, that you can play when you first get on there, or the fact that they're pushing these sagas to continually work um, could really help newer players learn the game first before they face like a real tough opponent. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, in defense of PhD, I, I don't think the player pool is big enough to uh, start compartmentalizing like new players and versus you know experienced players. I know it tries to do that right now, um, but I still think it's a daunting experience for a new player to get into Summoner Wars Online. And I love this game, so I'm trying to promote it as much as possible, even with my own friends. And it's hard. <laughs> it, it, it was difficult because. I mean, everyone wants to compete, right? And then when I'm smoking my my wife um, and just kicking her ass every time we play, even, even when I'm like trying to handicap myself, it's just not fun for them, right? And then they don't want to get it back to the table. I recently had asked a question on the Discord too, because like uh, our seven-year-old expressed some interest in at least trying to learn how to play. And they kind of suggested don't play events the first game. And that's this is something for, like an extreme thing for a younger player. But like, because, you know, kids often won't see the value in this card they have to read and see what it does so it's like okay we'll just play with the the units first and then go from there yeah that's a great idea for sure because the core mechanics are very simple it's just it becomes um a memorization game right in terms of uh not only knowing your own abilities in, in your faction but your your opponents too which is half the battle and then, like, the first time you run up against something like Out of Shadows or one of those other big events, you're like, oh, I did not know that sort of thing was possible, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then that might be too intimidating for them to revisit the game again, right? Yeah. And, and that's not something you want because, you know, once you get past that, that initial barrier, I think this game really, really shines. Yeah, another thing that I tend to do when I'm introducing the game to people is I won't play myself if I have the option. Like, if I have, like, a couple people in a game store who are interested, I'll be like, oh, you guys play each other. I'll just, like, help out and, like, help you guys, like, learn the cards and stuff. That's a great idea. Yeah, I think if you have the, if you got two people, yeah, or, you know, more, yeah, just go ahead and have them play. And that's the same tactic I used to use when I used to demo the first edition Summoner Wars at conventions, is I would hope that we'd get two people walking the con together and have them play a game against each other. So what? So just out of curiosity, what factions do you guys pick for that? To to teach people? Yeah, like the best like two factions to just introduce people to. I mean, I think it. I think that's one of those things that kind of depends on what the player might be interested in, you know. But I don't know. With my girlfriend, I had her play like the polar dwarves just because she kind of liked that idea of being more defensive and stuff. Right. And like we were saying, there's certain event. Like obviously, you don't want to just hand someone the cloaks the first time they're playing, you know, because they're just not going to oh, see. Oh yeah, it. for sure. I think the the general rule of like take the stuff from the earlier part of a wave is probably good. So like tundra orcs and phoenix elves probably good. Obsidian dwarves are probably fine, but maybe not sand goblins, even though they were at the start of a wave. That kind of thing. Yeah. But like fungal dwarves and eternal council, like there's too much going on for someone's first play for sure. Yeah, I did. Um savannah elves and cave goblins with my wife and that seemed to work well i like that duo because i feel like cave goblins are just fun to play against like everyone wants to be that last bastion of defense and just defending a horde right 
There's just something fun about that. And Savannah Elves, even if they, they have, like, a very high, like, skill level that you can get to, people still, like, recognize the cards that they can use really well from the beginning, even if they don't fully understand the best ways to use them. Yeah. But they're like, oh, Entangling and Chant of Power, that seems really strong. Yeah, they're pretty intuitive. Uh, I agree. They're definitely one of the factions. And, and because they're, you know, a top-tier faction, I like to have my opponents play as them. Um, if I'm ever teaching someone how to play. And I, I also think they're a good introduction to what's different. Uh, you guys, or you didn't really play first edition shampoo, but uh, first edition didn't have the boost. So I think even if you're getting someone from first edition, maybe show them Savannah elves to introduce them to that mechanic. For the boost, yeah. Well, there was one deck that had the boost. <laughs> it was a dual faction deck. It was from alliances. It was Benders and... And deep, deep it, yeah, it was like the deep benders or something like that, which just sounds like someone drank too much. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't use the boost in the same aspect. So for for someone who didn't play first edition, what was the timeline a bit? Like what made it kind of like, obviously there's a huge following on first edition, but what made uh, it evident that there needed to be a second edition. Like at what point? Because I, I mean, Jaxic, since you're the lead playtester of first edition, I'm curious to to hear your side of things. Um, yeah, uh, Colby will get into that a bit. By the time people hear this, they'll have heard Colby's take on it. But I can explain it to you. Basically, it's, it was business reasons. Like the set, once they were doing second summoners for factions, it wasn't selling as well. People weren't as interested in those decks, even though the core fan base loved it. He wasn't selling the same quantity of those, so the game just kind of slowed down. And he, was at that point, was already owned by another company. So, like, these companies, they want another Dead of Winter. They want another Mice and Mystics, and it wasn't that kind of a seller at that time. So he basically, when he got the company back again as his own Plaid Hat thing, a separate entity, like his own company, then he was like, oh, we still have the rights to our own game. Why don't we remake Summoner Wars? And why don't we learn from some of the lessons that we made? It, it was a good time to do a second edition about five years later at that point. Very interesting. The second edition also, like, fixed a couple of uh, problems with the first edition. Like, I love the first edition. It was my favorite game before second edition came out. But there were some very evident problems of, like, you got magic for killing your own units. So most decks on their very first turn would slaughter half of their own guys and be like, now I got more magic. I can do more in the game. Which which seems a little bit silly, right? Right. A lot of decks have even had more units out. So here it's like standardized to everyone has two guys out, but Cave Goblins would have like four or five units out. And they were about the only faction that wouldn't kill all their own guys at the start. But like Jungle Elves, which are now called the Savannah Elves, Jungle Elves would almost always kill like three of their own guys. Same with the Cloaks. Same with Shadow Elves. Yeah, Shadow Elves too. They had some guys that were like, eh, this guy's got one life, I'll just take him out. And you would just do it so you get the three magic and then build like a ton of cards as magic. Build is what they used to call the discard phase. And that wasn't like intentional in terms of design, right? No, it's just kind of like the way to play. It's like you would want to play all three of your champions and discard commons heavily because the commons were so weak or they didn't stick around the board as long as they do now. Like they still kind of die a bit now, but imagine that like twice as bad. Like, the the board, board states would fluctuate more unless you had a champion out. Commons had one or two life. For the most part, yeah. So the balance was, like, dictated almost by the strength of the summoner and the champions in first edition, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. 
So like early on, Guild Dwarves had some very good champions, so they were one of the stronger decks. But then other decks got powers that you know kind of changed things up a bit. But and the reason like Mountain Vargath now are one of the decks that everyone's looking forward to from first edition because like the Cave Goblins, they were one of the few decks that cared about commons the most. So mm-hmm. Mountain Vargath were like a common centric deck. So people will just have fond memories of them playing differently. In the context of second edition, they won't feel as different, but they're still fun. Nice. Interesting. Another difference was like first edition, you didn't take health damage each round for inactivity. So you people would just like sit in corners and wait for people to come to them. And then when you attacked them, you would just take a lot of losses because you had to press up and go into a bad position to attack them. And there was nothing to really enforce that. So, like, certain player, there were certain players online that would just be very passive, and you either had to just, like, attack them or just, you know, hit the clock faster. So there was definitely some design flaws there that became evident when you played online and people tried to optimize things in ways you wouldn't expect in, like, a friendly game, you know? Right. Yeah, that's um, that idle one damage i think is key because i can't imagine if if that were not in place that people would just turtle right yep happened a lot another one of the last like big changes was the amount of like dice that you were throwing and the amount of health that things had so things are almost doubled in second edition in terms of health yeah okay yeah so like maldaria and prince alien in first edition had four health you know, like just oh, wow. had four health. <laughs> so. okay. The biggest amount of health you could have in first edition was nine, and very few units had that. Yeah, most like a Grognak had like seven, Sneaks had seven, Sunderved had seven. Mm-hmm. So it kind of narrows the margin of error if um, you have meteor um, units on the board, right? Like in terms of dice, I mean. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like universally there's just been a lot of positive changes into second edition. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, what I'd like say is if you liked Summoner Wars before, you're going to love it in second edition. Still, the question is if we, you know, we can get more people to try it from the. I'm actually surprised how many people have come that didn't play first, like you and Prophet and others that just kind of, like you said, you maybe heard from the Shut Up and Sit Down show and some other places. So. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think earned media for, for this game is is really prominent online. Like I said, yeah, that shut up and sit down uh, review. Uh, BoardGameGeek.com has it as number three uh, in their deck building uh, list. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a really good article by the New York Times, I think. I could put it in the Discord on best two-player games, which surprisingly, there's not a lot of like two-player-only games out there, right? So for people like my wife and I, who are just, I guess our friends don't go out as much anymore. Uh, and we like board games. We're looking for a solid two-player game. And this this came on uh, a best of list by the New York Times, which is it's pretty good coverage for uh, PhD. Two-player games your wife and you enjoy. Yeah, what other ones? Uh, we Honestly, Radlands is amazing. Probably gets to the table the most. And it's just simple. It's quick. It's not asymmetrical in terms of factions. You share a deck, but I think the ease just to get into it. And then again, what we were talking about earlier in terms of learning the different abilities, when you're sharing one deck, it's pretty pretty easy to learn every ability uh, in that deck. But yeah, highly recommend. I don't know if you guys have ever tried it, but my wife and I are having a blast. It's been our summer 2023 game. My girlfriend and I have played a lot of King Domino 
over the time. King Domino. Never heard of that. Oh, it's it's real simple. It was one of the STJ games a little bit ago, but it's very simple. But it's like you're kind of like trying to arrange these dominoes and then you score points and you're trying to make like a square in this little kingdom. And you get points based on the number of crowns in an area multiplied by the the amount of spaces that, that match that crown. So like if you have like planes and you have like two crowns and seven total spaces, that's 14 points towards your goal. And then it's just whoever has okay. the most points. But it's, I mean, I can't overstate like how simple it is, but also like because it has kind of this drafting mechanic based on which space you take. So if you get a better place, it's going to score more points. You're going to like have a worse pick the next turn on what you pick. So you kind of have okay, to gauge that and do a bit of sort of like the hate drafting of like, oh, I know she really wants that double sheep spot. So I'm going to take it, even though it might not help me as much and that kind of thing. Or or just letting them take it because you're going to get more points doing your own thing, you know. Very cool. Aaron, what about you? I'm actually curious what you guys play. I play a couple of different uh, two players. We've been playing some that aren't necessarily fully two players, like Azul or Habitats. Um those are both some really good ones. Habitats has been a recent one that my wife and I just love. It's by uh, All Play. Also like a tile lane game. What's the theme? Is it like farming? No, it's like uh, Safari. Oh, okay. So you're all Jeeps like going through these like different areas all on like the same tile setup like board in the middle sort of. And it's like a grid system. And each time you move in a direction, you have to take that tile and then you add that to your habitat safari that you're creating in your own little tableau. Very interesting. I'll check both those games out because I'm always curious and looking for games. The other game that we're kind of playing is Bog of Love, kind of like the rom-com of Dungeons and Dragons. Like pretty <laughs> much like you build, you each build a character and you have like some traits and you have your own objectives which don't always involve like staying together. So it plays out like a little bit like a romantic comedy. And it's kind of funny. We have fun with that. Yeah, I want to check out Radlands too, because I haven't had a chance to play it, but I've heard nothing but good things. And I like lane battlers. They're fun. Yeah, honestly, if if you can like test it out somewhere and if you enjoy it, I highly recommend you get the deluxe edition. Yeah, does it just like add more cards and stuff to the... No, it actually, it gives you a play mat and... It has these synthetic cards that I've never seen before in any manufacturer of board games, but they're like indestructible. You don't need to sleeve them. You can like literally spill beer on them. You can like almost fold them. And for a game that just uses cards, you know, like cards get worn out over time. Like we have Seven Wonders Duel and mm -hmm. like some of the mm -hmm. cards are starting to bend a bit. And if you have a good memory, you know which bend card is what what i need <laughs> it's supposed to be right? hidden right now so you can kind of cheat. cards are weird size so you probably hard to get sleeves for them too oh yeah exactly but um yeah these synthetic cards are like they should be the industry norm in every uh deluxe edition they're fantastic that's interesting i yeah i've never heard of that but yeah check it if you can play it and really enjoy it yeah definitely get the deluxe edition so should we get to that tournament we were talking about sure <laughs> <laughs> figure out what happened i had a blast in this tournament by the way i'm so happy you convinced me jexic <laughs> by the way you were like telling me to like play anyone but sarah at first <laughs> <laughs> i know i was like, <laughs> like who should i play you're like oh uh you should try a cylinder 
Yeah, I was I was big on the Shadow Elves because I thought they were well because I th- I'd seen you play Shadow Elves in base like in that one game where you had the big comeback and stuff. So I knew you were a good Shadow Elves player, and I had the feeling that Shadow Elves were good. But I'm bad with Shadow Elves, so I knew that I couldn't take them to do a lot of good things. So I thought like maybe you could, but I'm glad you joined the tournament and decided to you know take a sort of an off meta pick and see what happened with it. Um, Honestly, I love Sarah. I love the Vanguards. I just it's difficult to compete with them in a tournament just because they have so many bad matchups. You mean like in the base deck? Yeah. In base deck, yeah. So I actually looked at the deck builder. I'm like, you know what? I could do something with these guys. I decided to give them a shot. And it worked out pretty well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, like it seems like Peace is probably one of the biggest additions for the deck, the, the Peace Arbiter. Oh, for sure. And honestly, so maybe you guys can explain this to me because I'm... I guess I'm a little bit of a noob. Uh, when I was looking at the comments, I'm like, where the hell's war? So I guess that's when I realized... You can go in like breakers and stuff like that, yeah. So I guess that's when I realized that each deck doesn't share the same symbols. Like there there could be commons that have different symbols in them, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't realize that at first. I'm like, where the hell's war? <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> give me war. You can get peace and priests, I think, from, from the high elves in that deck. Yeah. Yeah. So the priests are not as useful because they can only go off of the the peace arbiter, basically, you know, so. Yeah, no, I left them off my deck. But yeah, I can get into uh, my decision process in terms of uh, what cards I picked. Yeah, for sure. So I actually have it open right now. In terms of champions, I mean, Cassia, like all day. (laughs) She's definitely um, the top champion of this deck I created. I don't even think I ever got Colleen out because, because of Peace and Cassia that both benefit from, you know, commons being boosted by their abilities. It didn't really feel beneficial to ever really bring out Colleen or Finessa just because I felt like it'd be a wasted resource if I have Cassia out there that's, you know, turning out heals only for commons and Peace as well, who is pre- protecting only commons. Um, so that was my reasoning for summoning Cassia most of the time. I tried to get her out as much as possible. I think I even drew her in our final game in the opening hand, and I kind of refused to discard her. Maybe that was my downfall. <laughs> but honestly, she figured if you're gonna win. Yeah, she she really is kind of the um the bastion of that defense uh in the back line and renewed hope is fantastic for this deck in terms of creating your positioning because this this deck i create is all about having the proper positioning especially with peace and you can easily do that with renewed hope having a renewed hope at the early stages of the game is usually pretty beneficial and then having it in your back pocket or in your hand to rearrange um, as needed as the game goes on is pretty good as well and then going through this list, so yeah, Colleen, I, I don't think I, I ever brought her out. Finessa, in terms of value, was good. I do like her ability, especially as like a frontline champion to my defenses. So I think I brought her out once or twice. Uh, definitely against the Cave Goblins. I think against mm-hmm. R.D. Bruce. How do you pronounce his name? I don't know. I say R.D. Bruce. People, we could probably ask him sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I think I brought her out then. 
because uh, yeah, you need a lot of magic if you're bringing out Casket and Finessa and all my knights. Um, so uh, yeah, in terms of discards, Colleen and Finessa were probably two of the champs I discarded a lot. And then going down to my common units, I did like a cheap scholar. Also, Wise and Analyze is pretty underrated, even outside of Eternal Council deck. Just kind of, you know, cycling your hand, getting new cards in your hand is always good. I found that as an interesting pick. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected that. But yeah, you're, you're just saying the Scholar was valuable to cycle through your deck and keep things flowing. Yeah, exactly. And also, Vanguards in general don't have a lot of muscle outside of the Paladin. And this gave me an assassination option that I did against the Breakers. I believe it was King Zora. But just having two Scholars, or sorry, three Scholars in my deck and Loyalty gave me the threat of assassination. And I did do that with five dice for each Scholar against King Zora. And I con you can combo that with uh, Renewed Hope, Judgment. And Holy Judgment, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if you have the right hand, I mean, that could be pretty devastating like out of nowhere assassination attempt so there was that a way for you to assassinate aaron and i were talking about it earlier like there's no way you can surprise anybody with this deck but i guess there was one, <laughs> one way. you know what honestly that was something i was like trying to do in our final game because i know you were using sneaks as a shield a body shield a lot and to be honest that last play i did before brutal force I'm like, okay, nine's the sweet spot. Like, I need to get him down to nine. And by mm -hmm. doing that, I need to get two hits on him. And I felt pretty comfortable because I was still three spaces away from uh, sneaks. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And then, surprise, you pulled out a brutal force <laughs> with Enrage the Horde. And every card you needed. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I would felt pretty safe. I against your deck and against a couple of other decks using sneaks pretty up close because I didn't feel like there was a lot of things that could really threaten him from a Vanguard deck or like a couple other decks I played. Like if I realize that people are playing like a cloaks deck that's just for survival and it's got like scavengers and it's got parapets like ice golems and stuff and parapets then I feel less worried about being assassinated as Sneaks, and I'll use Sneaks more. No, it was the right play, because, I mean, you are right. Like, I was just trying to deplete your horde and get to the end game. And that was my strategy a lot of the time as well. Just get to the end game. It was it was kind of like a, like an anaconda just constricting my, my victim and a slow death um, in each of my wins. Except for Jexic, I think we had a really close one, our second game. That was really close. And the game against Massimo was all, like really close as well. Those were my two close victories, but my losses were all kind of pretty like lopsided. And my other victories <laughs> too were pretty, just like a slow kind of inevitable win, I would say. Yeah, you, your other losses were to what me and the pol or the fungal dwarves, right? In the earlier rounds. Yeah, that was uh that was a brutal matchup. When I saw his deck, I'm like, this guy's going to win for sure. I'm like, this deck is unstoppable. <laughs> and I actually don't know who he lost to because I think first phase of the second round, he was 4-0, I think, first warden, right? Yeah, first warden, yeah. And then out of, I'm like, okay, like I have no shot. This guy beat me, and he's 4-0. And then you guys came to my rescue, or three people, three people defeated him in the second round, which I was shocked because I'm like, this deck is insane. I think it was Massimo. I think King Zora might have beat him. King Zora and uh, Doug. And Doug, yeah. 
King Zora was the one that surprised me because I had played, I think, against King Zora's deck a couple of times in like open queue, and I feel like Purse Warden's deck is a bit stronger. Mm. Massimo's deck is just the decks like that are just always tough for fungal dwarves when you're playing against shadow elves. It's just always a tough matchup. Yeah, but... and I I think we we spoke about this, Jackson, but you. Like you pretty much said that his deck like countered my deck pretty hard because everything I was trying to do, like he had like an answer for it in his deck. And especially, I think the like the addition of the Vine Mancers kind of gave allowed him to just like keep shifting the line. Like you can't do the controlling that you wanted yeah. to do of where of where the fights happened. And so he just kind of he was as good at outlasting you as you were. So then he just kind of and he also has the potential to use demand and other stuff to just win. Yeah, it was it was it was a rough, sweaty match. Like I was just like, oh, I can't do anything. I think Aaron, you messaged me like, like, oh, this is a good match, and then I'm like, it's going south fast. But well, the funny thing too is like, I made a couple mistakes in my game against Purse Warden, but I might have won if I just got really lucky with my fighter. Like, <laughs> I had a fighter with it with an axe and like the chance to just go ham with fury, but I or frenzy, but I got like no frenzies on like four boosts or something one turn. And yeah, our honestly, our game was really close. Our second game against each other, mm-hmm. like that came. That was one of the few end games that actually was like pretty close. Because you had Brub on the board at the, in the end game, like fuck, <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Brub doesn't always do it. Yeah, Brub doesn't scare me. There, there's a lot of hate on Brub. I don't know why. So yeah, I guess since you brought up, what is it? What are the opinions on Brub? <laughs> I find okay, deck building is very extra, right? It's like there's heavy power swings. Everyone's got an OP trick. I have an OP trick with my deck, so I'm I'm not complaining. And Brub is the OP of that deck, so I can't complain, right? Because everyone's kind of benefiting from some kind of OP benefit within their deck. And Brub is, you know, he's pretty predictable. I find I I think he's I think he's finally balanced because if if your opponent has five magic and some boosts on grog then get the hell out of there you know what i mean like (laughs) don't be anywhere near it's like a bomb that's gonna go off and it's got a timer you know what i mean like just yeah clear the vicinity i know it's not always that easy but i feel like it's not it's not unbalanced is my point yeah i mean that's kind of what i found is that you can either kill grognak or block the gates you know, or just get out of there. It's like, if you can't do any one of those three things, then okay, he might ha- he might do a bunch of damage. But I think the most surprising thing is like when he actually when Grognak actually had no boosts, but he had five magic, and he comes out and you just play willpower or something, and you just have two re rolls and you still do like nine damage, and then that's a little frustrating, maybe. But oh yeah, for sure. I don't know. It, he because he, he can do that, but also he could come out with two re rolls and do zero damage and you're like why did i spend five magic on this champion you know yeah exactly so i think so he's he's like he's really high variance and some people just don't like adding that to their games but i don't know i think he's he has a nice like archetype to the deck that or to deck building that didn't exist in base deck we don't have some weird semi-infinite combo elsewhere and i think it's just i don't know it's a fun little thing so to me but. You, okay so you probably have inside information cuz you spoke with kobe and joe and i know you're a deck building guy didn't joe allude to the fact that brub might get banned is he getting banned in future tournaments or should we start a save brub campaign at, at this point it sounds like no he's kind of on our side of 
he doesn't seem to be the most broken thing going on, so why ban him, you know? Okay. Yeah, that's the thought process right now. I find that you can really stop Brub if you just stick a bunch of Cave Goblin units in his way. That's my idea. You just He can't move if there's five Cave Goblin units to move through yeah. to get to sneaks. Because like, that's the thing. They don't have the tricks that something like Cloaks or some of these other decks have that allow you to bypass things or move through things or whatever. And the one that I took out of my deck, which I regret, which is Brutal Force, because you can do some tricky things by, like, hitting Brub or having Brub hit something else repeatedly <laughs> to, to knock it forward. Yeah, that Brutal Force, man, that was brilliant. And that's what I like about deck building, too, is because I don't think there is a meta yet, and people are just experimenting, and there's something fun about that. You know, kudos to you, Aaron, for bringing Brutal Force into your deck and being the only one that did that. And I'll, I'll be honest, in my... Like, I had a couple of practice matches, actually, with Jexic and Vexer. Each time, it was, like, it was Brutal Force that I was planning around. Um, I think I was overall 2-2, two and two, but that's what, like, the two victories were because of Brutal Force. We kind of agreed that, you know, if you get a good draw with Cave Goblins, like, it could be a disaster for you. Yeah, and we had talked even a little before the matches started, and you were like, yeah, I know it's going to be whether or not you get a full force <laughs> off. I know that's, that's well, even my first turn, like, um, I think Joe and Kobe were commentating, and they were like, oh, why do you put the Citadel Advisor down on his left flank? I'm like, well, that was to protect for, for brutal force. And also, they got Citadel unit on the board as well to trigger uh, Citadel's might. But yeah, they like that. They're like, oh, I, I would have forgot to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, with, with this deck, and also part of the reason why Sanctity is so good in this deck, each time you trigger Citadel's Might is like one boost for your, or one 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 step closer to victory for you, right? Because you're just building up magic. So I'm trying to trigger that as much as possible. Because uh, my strategy is usually pretty straightforward, is to get to the end game. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that people don't realize about my deck also, because I have these, like, explosive plays to use. My deck has a pretty good econ at the end, too, because I just make it so you can't hit me, or, like, I'll use Baldo to just hop in, attack, and then bounce back. I had a couple games go pretty far in my tournament run. That, like, I had to win basically on Econ. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. And I played Vexer, and he actually won one Econ game. I'm like, what the fuck? How is this possible? <laughs> like, you're kidding <laughs> So that's why yeah. there was, like, a direct correlation with how many times I triggered Citadel's Might and, like, victory, right? So that's why I felt the necessity to play that early on and my positioning for Sarah before that Brutal Force. Because actually, I was kind of scenario planning your turn, and I actually felt that you would probably, if you didn't have the hand that you had, I felt that you'd probably go to the right or attack my gate. Um, so I had to have her in a position where she can trigger another Citadel's Might on the second turn of Sanctity. And then, yeah, surprise, <laughs> with your Brutal Force hand. I was like, damn, well played, well played. Yeah, did you watch my game against Adamant? I believe so, yeah. So it was the same play, right? Yeah, in the round before, he played Vanguards, and I played against him, and it came pretty close. I won on a Brutal Force in the end, but both our decks were getting pretty close to the end. He probably would have been able, because of positioning, to outlast me. But during that entire game, part of my game plan was hide in these lanes behind gates while attacking so that I can't let him trigger any Citadel's Might. Like... 
he only triggered one or two, I think, like the entire game with Sarah because he just didn't have the option. Like I didn't give him. And, and that's to the way to play against my deck that I created. Just don't give me opportunities to trigger Citadel's might. Because yeah, like I said, every every time you trigger it, it's just one one step closer to victory in terms of the econ. I still am in a little bit disbelief that nobody else brought brutal force to like the tournament at all that I saw. Because I, for a while beforehand, like when I would play deck building and be talking with like either James or Prophet or, or Debreas, um, like talking to him about like what makes my deck tick. And I'd always bring up Brutal Force because it's just so powerful. In like the first iteration of that I saw of a Cave Goblin deck, yeah, Prophet played it yeah. and he would just use it. He would He would call it his assembly line and he would just line up a bunch of slingers and just brutal force you down the line. And then the game's over. <laughs> he did that to my Maldario once. I had like a pretty good spot. And then he just, yeah, I was, I thought I was safe. And then I just got brutal forced. Yeah, I feel like with cave goblins, it's just that much more deadly, right? Because you have so many attacks. Yeah, with the Enrage of the Horde. It was just like, okay. even I mean, you saw, right? Even with Sanctity. With nine damage. Oh, man, that was brutal. <laughs> and honestly, I wasn't even mad when I saw that. I just laughed. I was like. Oh man, well played, <laughs> well played. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, I feel like, the right attitude to have with deck building is that you don't always see everything coming, but when some when you do see something neat, it's like, oh, that's cool. I, I'm impressed. You know, it's not. Yeah, everything's over the top, and it's fun. You know what I mean? The one thing I'll say about deck building, though, I especially in this matchup, I don't know about you, Aaron, but I felt first mover advantage was huge in this matchup and <clears throat> your uh, beast rider blocking my forward positioning in terms of the gate was huge um because i can just have units die in front of a gate and then you can keep you know attacking uh with your goblins but that was part of my strategy against vexer and jacksick is just yeah you can keep charging but i'll always have those gate positions because I could just have a Citadel Knight die in that position and then respawn him next turn, right? Yeah, I think that's something that doesn't really change from deck building to base decks in this matchup is like the Vanguards love to go first and so do the Cave Goblins. Cave Goblins thrive on it because they can get that forward push. They can block gates. They can get all their units up in front and continually keep that pressure up. And it it definitely was a big turning point. You talked about earlier about maybe pitching Cassia. But I don't know if we would have went to like time of who would have won, but I think it would have been really close because if you had pitched Cassia in that first hand, I think your long game suffers a lot. It's funny because like on that turn, I triggered Sanctity. I had the hand to like build that like defense bunker and I'm like, I'm good. I'm good now. And then <laughs> the game was over after your turn. But I felt like I was pretty close to establishing that defensive bunker to really make it challenging for you to penetrate. Something I was kind of worried about was you had played a renewed uh, hope like yeah. right off the bat. And I didn't know if you had another one in hand. I don't know how much it would have changed things after that turn. But I was a little worried that like, oh, he might have renewed hope and it might be hard to finish up this kill for a little bit if he can just summon like a couple citadel knights and just yeah it down. no i did i didn't have that hand unfortunately but yeah honestly it was a fun game um even if it lasted like three turns <laughs> <laughs> yeah i actually spoiled it for myself because 
I had been watching the ELO for the deck building stuff, and I noticed I knew Aaron wasn't really playing any games, and it went from like fourteen hundred to fourteen sixteen. I was like, oh, he won. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, that's clever. <laughs> you. So I I spoiled it for myself, but I didn't want I, I I didn't want to ask any details about it, but but I figured that's what happened. But I know in the, I know in the stream, um, someone proposed. I don't know if it was you, Jackson, to check out the Massimo game. That was one of the sweatiest games I played. <laughs> that was super close. Yeah. I don't know if you guys watched that game, but yeah, I definitely watched parts of it. I, that came down to the wire. I thought at one point, and I felt bad, but I congratulated Massimo at one point because when Fuzzy posted in the Discord, I misread it, and I thought that they were saying that Massimo had won. And I was like, oh, Massimo, congrats on getting the win. Like, I guess we'll see each other in the next round. And he was like, the game's not over. It's not over. That was so sweaty, that matchup. Like, he pressed forward at one point. Like, I was in the corner. Then he retreated. And then, like, I had to, like, mobilize and move forward. Yeah, it, that was an intense matchup. I tried to talk to him about it after. I think he, uh, yeah, he didn't want really want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was no, no, he was a good sport about it, but uh, I think yeah, it came down to dice in that matchup. I think. Where do you think vanguards like fall in the top deck building faction? I would put them probably in an upper tier for sure. And this is based on my limited experience playing, but I mean, minus brutal force, I felt like I was able to compete with every faction except Purse Warden, like. Even our matchup, like, I, I, I don't know how many times, I don't know what the record would be if we played 10 times. Uh, maybe six, four, you. But, like, I felt mm -hmm. like, even with Brutal Force in your deck, I still felt like it was it was a pretty manageable victory. I do think my deck is pretty bad against First Warden's deck, just like, like you guys said. I think they just do a lot of things that counter what I do. So, I honestly, if you were to ask me, I would say First Warden's deck is probably top tier. And then our decks maybe just below that. And then Shadow Elves as well. The interesting thing is that I think there's other possible good Fungal Dwarves decks too, because Ben 10's been running something really weird with like Rhinos and Blood Summon and making his deck all about that. He he, he had to like drop some games because he was at Gen Con and he wasn't able to finish the games. But uh he beat Massimo oh, in wow. week one. Okay. And uh, he he also discovered something interesting that, that I didn't know. Someone had done it to him where with Blood Summon, you can actually keep triggering it even if you have no more cards to summon. And you think, why would you want to do that? But you can keep doing two damage to stuff. It works kind of like Purge and then it can kill extra units oh. to get those death triggers for, for Undead Warriors. Interesting. And that So that's a weird interaction that happens sometimes too so you can like just blow people up with warriors that way or just get the triggers for their for the fungal dwarves you know like you can kill some stuff so that your rhinos get bigger and then they can just move really far interesting i i do think um grog is up there as well though in terms of strength yeah i mean i i've kind of said i think it's like maybe the fourth or fifth best deck you know um, we used to think cloaks were up there, but we the cloaks didn't do great in the tournament. But I still think, and it seems like only profit's the one that can do it. So like, if only profit can do it, maybe <laughs> it's just profit being profit, yeah. and not necessarily the deck is that strong, you know. But I don't know. But I'm actually I'm curious because you're kind of the, the guru of deck building. What's your top five? The I thought it was like I think I would used to say like uh, fungal dwarves, shadow elves, and um, cave goblins. 
and then the fourth was uh cloaks and then like tundra orcs right there at five but i don't know i mean like the fact that you've done well with vanguards and other other things makes it you know tough to know and like eternal council seems really good too because like doug and some other people have made some good decks with eternal council just because like taking a step back away from the super summoner strategy and just recurring really good events like renewed hope guarding spirits yeah. is like a to- totally different game plan but it works really well like Doug beat me a couple times, or has beaten me several times with my Tundra Orc deck just by being able to keep using Renewed Hope to control the battlefield better. Yeah, that's a good point. I am excited about, I think it, this was on the Discord, but some of the new cards for Crimson Order, because I have like a pretty useless event in this deck, Guarding. I think I discarded that most of the time. Mm. But there was that Blood one where you give like two damage or something, and you get healed for two damage if you're adjacent to a unit. Did you guys hear that? Yeah, something like that. I'm like, whoa, that would be really good in my deck. Yeah, that was the one in the picture of the preview that I think Colby posted or something. Another question I have for you: Did did you know, Shampoo, that now in open play on the open queue for deck building, you can see your opponent's deck. You don't have to scout anymore, so you can just click on it. Oh yeah, that's brilliant. That's a great addition. Do you, so you think you'll play more potentially sure. in open queue? For sure. That was one of the, the my main criticism of playing deck building initially. It was just like okay like what's gonna come out of that gate now like who knows like it's like impossible to plan right where in the tournament it's like i was able to scout people's decks and prepare for it so at least you have some control to mitigate you know what could possibly happen to you on 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 the next turn so the fact that you can see cards it's yeah it's game changer i think the first game i played in deck build online like a beast rider came out of nowhere. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it just stormed out of the gate and then hit my summer. I used to play beast rider in Grognak just because uh, the surprise factor was good. Yeah. Yeah. So now that that's gone, you know, obviously you're going to plan for it if, if you see beast riders in the guy's deck. But, you know, when you're four or five spaces away from a gate, you're like, right, I'm good. Nope. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was with the dwarves, actually. Oh, oh, yeah, OD can play him, too, for sure, because they're primal. So, yeah, that was even more surprising, because, like, Grog, I can understand, like, yeah, he might have a Beast Rider in his deck, but I'm like, what the hell is this dwarf having? Like, why, why does he have a Beast Rider <laughs> in his deck? Take some time to get used to what symbols are in what decks. For sure. for sure, yeah. Yeah, one of the games that I lost very quickly with my deck in just, like, open ranked play was against Obsidian Dwarves, and they used Brutal Force against me also, but what happened was he didn't even, like kill my units the first turn or anything i think he killed one or something but he just hit both sneaks and my beast rider into positions on either side of my gate and got to the other two positions on my gate and i had nowhere to summon (laughs) and i was just like brutal force back into starting position around my gate and i was like huh i can't do anything this next turn and now he's in my face and i was like and now I don't have a gate. <laughs> See, I, I honestly, I love moves like that, like where you can kind of like checkmate someone on the turn before. So like they have nothing to do or they like they can't defend it. Those are like my favorite plays, like kind of like what you did to me on the Brutal Force. Those are my favorite kind of finishes. It's like a checkmate before the actual check. Yeah, and that was against Gedis. Gedis, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he was running a pretty good Obsidian Dwarves deck for a while. I think their last bite on the Discord. Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, they haven't been posting as much lately, but they were for a while. But what cards in your 
deck shampoo did you normally like discard for magic you you talked about guarding but yeah, what find, other cards like, do you normally get rid like, of with any deck even in base decks like you have to establish where you're going to get your magic from and you have to weigh in it and almost like kind of see where the lowest value cards are in terms of where you're going to fuel your magic and in my deck it was two champions i talked about colleen and finessa just because they don't benefit from some of the the buffs of the piece uh arbiter and also cassia and i'm just going through it right now uh the advisor definitely i mean he was pretty situational i liked using him to trigger a citadel's might with sarah where she can kind of poke in and out into safety but there wasn't always a lot of opportunity. And sometimes I had lanes created with the knights where I could just safely do it anyways. Knights, obviously, I'd never discard. I love the knights. Definitely one of my favorite units in the game. Paladin, also situational. And Peace Arbiter, too. I mean, if I have two Peace Arbiters in play in the back of my line, I don't really need a third one. Scholars as well, a little bit situational. Actually, I ended up playing Scholars a lot just because they were cheap. And they were a good burst of damage. And also they help. I spoke about this before. I, I really did like Wise and Analyze just to kind of help cycle my hand. Because there's a couple of combos you can do with this deck. And sometimes you're fishing for a card, right? Uh, just to, to be able to set up that combo. Some great insight. I mean, I, with my deck, tried to discard very little for Magic. Because that's how Cape Goblins go. But I would tend to not play Blarf the most. Because... My other two champs were just mm. so strong in Baldo and Dagger that if I ever drew into two champs or I was only had one champ even and I just didn't have the magic for it and it was Blarf, I would just pitch Blarf. And that was like one of the few cards that I was just very comfortable. Like, if I have to get rid of a card... What about Beast Riders? This is the one I'm going to do it. Um, Beast Riders, I would very occasionally discard one, but I liked playing all my Beast Riders because they gave me so much reach. You only had two of each, right? Yeah, I only had two Beast Riders, so I didn't have a ton of magic going towards them. So I had my starting one and then two more. And then another card that I would tend to discard, and this might be surprising based off my games, is Brutal Force. Because I found that I oh, rarely yeah. needed more than one Brutal Force in a game. So if I found the first one and I didn't have a hand to play around it, I would discard it and just hope that the second one came up at a time that was good. Yeah, that makes I sense. could see that because it's it's kind of that game changer card, like out of the shadows, slip, glinting speed that like you don't really need the first one, but you mm -hmm. want the second one in your hand late game. Right. Just to kind of set up that finish. But you definitely don't want two at once. You know, you don't want to like hold on to it and then draw the second. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, all those cards I just mentioned, I usually except for Out of the Shadows, but those car other cards I mentioned, I usually discard the first one I draw. Yeah, they're usually situational for endgame to go for the finish. I think that's potentially why any deck that can run um, Onyx Tome could be really could, could be good, just because you can play one-ofs of a lot of events and be happy discarding them and then just get whatever you need with Onyx Tome. So like any dark or light deck can play that, you know? And, and I guess even Vanguards could if you wanted to. Yeah, so my reasoning for not playing it was I don't think Onyx Tomb has great value just in terms of, well, especially for the Vanguards because you're damaging... Yeah, it's not a good long-term game card. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're damaging uh, your uni unit for two health, and it also costs one magic, right? Yeah, so you're paying a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If it was free, I think I would definitely put it in. Yeah, in terms of value, I, I just don't think it's a good return. That makes sense for if you're if you're strictly playing a long term game and you don't have other excess 
forms of value. I feel like shadow elves and fungal dwarves can create so much value that it doesn't hurt them as much. Yeah, and they get value mm-hmm. in kill. They get value in damaging their own units too. But here's the hot take: even as shadow elves, I do discard tomb. I know there's some people who are like, "Oh, I would never discard tomb," but actually, I mean, for those very reasons I just said, you know, sometimes I'll just discard it. I think again, often you probably want to discard one and then just like hope you get the other one when you need some whatever card it is, you know. Yeah, it's weird when you just see people like Onyx Tome for a common they need, but I've seen that quite a bit actually, you know. Yeah, and if you don't have a seeker to kind of play Onyx Tomb with, then early game especially, I tend to discard Tomb if I if I can't find a use for it. But then having it late game is is definitely helpful just to pull the cards you need for for that deck. Yeah, I find like when I was talking to some people about my deck, and I would tell them that I'd only usually play one Brutal Force, or I would just get rid of one Brutal Force and discard it for magic throughout the game. Why aren't you only running one Brutal Force then? You can run a better event to like counteract that, run like a Willpower, run a Pylon or something. But I think running two events, even if you don't use them both, is sometimes oh, for sure. the better way to go about it because you just get them so much easier throughout the deck. A hundred percent. Yeah, you're increasing the probability of being able to use it when you need it, right? And it seems all about probability. I used to have a pretty splashy Cave Goblins deck. Like, I tried running, like, four different active events as one-ofs, like Unrelenting, Brutal Force, and some other stuff, just to see if that would be a, a good strategy. Um, it seemed to work okay, but obviously not as well as uh, Aaron's Cave Goblins have worked, so I'll defer to you guys on that one. <laughs> Another thing is, I was curious if I would see Purse Warden's deck, because I used to play an almost identical deck in, like, Shibata's tournaments. Um... I the only thing that I didn't have in my deck was the Vine Mancers. I never had a chance to like really see how Vine Mancers worked in that deck. Oh my god. Did you yeah, did you watch our you, you watched our game, right? Like they were scary. He was like fucking Yeah, it was like, maneuvering crazy. them around. He was like Neo from the Matrix. Like I couldn't hit him. Like he just kept <laughs> like resurrecting his units. I'm like, okay, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> yeah, and that's where like I don't know if it's a good matchup. It's probably still like a 40-60 kind of matchup. But I think Tundra Orcs can kind of hang with that just because they can put out so much damage with with like fighters with axes and stuff. Like you can cut mm-hmm. through all those beasts in one turn if with a, a few decent rolls, you know. Well, especially with uh, with an axe and for glory, right? Yeah, I mean, you can kill like two beasts pretty easily and that really helps turn the tide sometimes. Or just, you know, kill Kuldak if you have the right positioning. And yeah. For sure, yeah. Very true. Or you just brub through their entire set. Like, oh, there's six units in a row. I have the, six boosts. Here's... The only thing I've found with that, though, is that, one, it takes a lot of boosts, and the other part is that uh, Purseworn and other Fungal Dwarf players will often have so much stuff per- clogging up your gates and other spaces that Kuldak or whatever important targets might not be within a line that you can get to. And you can only kill as, as many as three units, right, with brub? Well, I mean, unless you're in like a crossroads. Oh, yeah. If you're yeah, in a you're crossroads, right, you right. shoot multiple. But still, like, it has to open up for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to have perfect positioning to get like all crossroads, and that would be something. I would, I'd actually like to see that. I, I'm sure I've got a, a replay somewhere that shows me killing more than three units. Because I've played a couple hundred games with Brub, probably. So I That seen would mean all. that you're completely sworn, but you have one gate positioning. That's open, <laughs> and then you're like, we need reinforcements, and then Brub comes in and just clears <laughs> clears the battlefield. I'm just glad that Brub can't rotate while attacking. I, I 
tell you that'd be crazy if or like all right, force, I killed this lane. Force after attacking, kind of like right. yeah. All right, I killed Oof, that lane. Yeah. But I was really curious if I would face uh, Fungal Dwarves because that's probably the worst matchup for my deck. I never struggled a, a ton against it in open queues. I actually had a winning record. I was four and two against Compared it. Compared to the eighty-five percent with other decks, so it's it, it just by your hardest matchup. <laughs> that's very true. I lost like. Or you said like eight. You were like sixty-four and eight or something like that. <laughs> yeah honestly i i feel like his deck like if you were to ask me like right now i th i would say his deck was the best uh despite your brutal force showcase i yeah his first word is first word yeah first word is deck. yeah i mean he and i have been doing a lot of deck building for a long time so he's definitely tweaked it over the the time with each release and stuff like that so yeah. we've played a lot and like I said, it was my hope that it would like be me and him in the finals, and then we were in the same pool, so it was impossible. Uh, and then we both didn't make it. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking we uh, the the word is we might do a scuffle at one point. I don't know if that'll happen after this is aired or some other time. <laughs> oh yeah, you guys should totally do it. I would I would like to see yeah who would win that. I mean, you just spoke about you you clearing through his uh, his line of undead, <laughs> so I kind of want to see it now. I think that'd be a great scuffle. But it's probably going to still be a while because I think Ben wants to keep doing uh, regular decks for a while and get people more used to that before he just drops this deck building thing on them. But he's been really into deck building a lot lately too on his stream and stuff. So Nice, makes sense. And um, I posted this in the Discord, but I mean, since you had um, Kobe and uh, Joe on, I mean, you guys are producing some great content within the community. Is there any possibility PhD can like mirror their streams and, and you know, you guys can kind of appear on their channels? to promote uh, the game a bit more. I, mean, I think he's saying like if they're doing the scuffle, if they could just like have it also show on their channel for Twitch. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if they would, but I mean, that'd be interesting. Like is, is like hosting still a thing on Twitch? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I've seen other uh, people do it on Twitch. I mean, you guys are producing great content. I think this game's amazing and I'm always trying to do my part to push it to friends and, and whatnot. To, to try to get it more mainstreamed because I think this game does deserve mainstream success. Hoping to grow the player race above the like 300, 400 people we, we got right now that are active on well, the I mean, you guys are doing a good thing with the podcast and, you know, the streaming. I think that's a start, right? And the community is great. We appreciate you coming on the podcast, Shampoo, and talking to us about uh, deck building. And yeah, the of course. My pleasure, guys. Just Summoner Wars in general. Thanks for coming on. This has been Discard for Magic. We'll see you guys in two weeks.